Hey, esto es Experiencial, el podcast sobre marketing experiencial del Grupo Evento Plus. Hoy, hoy tienes un 2x1. De un lado te permitimos refrescar tu inglés y de otro lado te traemos la sabiduría de Natalina Hay, psicóloga inglesa, conferenciante, autora de varios bestsellers, que nos traerá las claves de la persuasión humana y algunas cosas más, que es lo que tiene hablar con una mente inquieta. got a very special expert today. We've got Natalie Nahai, the author of the best-selling book, uh, Business Unusual. She's a psychologist. She's a speaker. She's a moderator. She's uh, an, an open mind. She lives in Barcelona. If you need a, a wonderful speaker for your event, um, she's, she's here. Uh, and Natalie, you, you speak a bit of Spanish. You're going to give us a demonstration, a proof of that in 15 seconds. Then we'll move back to English. ¿Cómo estás? Muy bien, ¿qué tal tú? <risa> Puedo hablar un poco, pero no tanto sobre mi, mis temas de, de trabajo. Entonces, convertimos a inglés. Vale, ok, ok. You, you passed the test. Um, the, the, the first question, I'm gonna, we're going to have a very open conversation, maybe a bit messy, but that's, that's part of, uh, of creativity and idea exchange. The, the first one, you're a psychologist, probably the type of of trade that we need more uh, in, in today's complex society. As people who are, in a way, we're all involved in marketing, in, mm -hmm. in dealing with customers or internal marketing, which is uh, dealing with, with, with employees or with, with co-workers. Uh, as such people, we need to understand customers, employees, we need to understand their context, their emotions, their expectations. And I guess this is an, an amazing uh, lab for you as a psychologist because we've lived uh, like a roller, an emotional roller coaster in the last two years. Um, what would you say is the situation today? Obviously, I'm going to ask you to simplify a complex world in, in, in just a few, uh, a few headlines. But what, how do you see the psychological context today of people, both as employees, as customers, and as, as, as citizens? How would you summarize the economic psych, the, the psychologic um, situation of, of people. So the pandemic has catalyzed a lot of the trends we were seeing previously. And these trends, the biggest ones, are around a deeper desire for meaning, integrity, and purpose in our lives, which we saw beforehand, but it's moved into the world of consumption. So more conscious consumerism aligned with people's values. And in the world of business, with the great resignation, reshuffling, people wanting four-day work, week work weeks instead of five. And so I think there are a few key things that we have to understand if we're trying to reach people as businesses trying to attract and retain employees or as brands trying to attract consumers. And that's that we have to be able to meet their deeper human needs. Okay. So, um, yeah, values, purpose are, are especially important. Just, just one, uh, since we have to... This is the elephant in the room. We cannot escape this. Do you think Ukraine has also just deepened these existing trends or, or do they mean a change? What's happening in Ukraine, which, which is shaking us all uh, emotionally? Mm. Do, do you think it also goes in the direction of thinking, okay, more than 
more than consumers or, or, or ambitious people. We are mostly human. We belong to a community. We have to take care of each other. Uh, will it strengthen that um, that movement that the pandemic didn't start, but the pandemic accelerated something which I believe was already underway beforehand? Yeah, so one of the really interesting themes that I'm seeing crop up in lots of conversations is this idea of entanglement. So whether you look at it from a perspective of social entanglement, so we're more able to access information, real and disinformation from all over the world. So with the situation with Ukraine, when we see videos of people's homes being blown up or people dying or being wounded, we have a greater social entanglement and the emotional impact of that feels closer. We also have economic entanglement. So I think from the perspective of businesses who want to make money and work with partners around the world, including Ukraine, we have to think about how the health of the whole system is dependent on the, on the health of the nodes within the system of which Ukraine is an important part. And so there's, there's, it's tricky because you have a realization that we are more interconnected and interdependent than ever before. And yet at the same time, from the psychological perspective, there's a dissonance between our lived experience of the home that we are, you know, we're in Barcelona, everything's at peace here. We just had San Medir, we've, we've had celebrations, and that feels very different to the images and the videos that we're seeing of people who are losing their livelihood. So it's also about how do we find a way to make peace with, not even peace, but integrate these different realities, the one that is local and the one that is further afield on a global stage. Uh, in the realm of business and brands, it's a question of, taking some kind of responsibility, how can they help in a way that is not self-serving to support people who are in dire need of help? Mm. Um, you know, we've seen that with examples like with uh, Elon Musk making internet available. It has limited impact, but it has some impact, right? So, or with people putting Google reviews for businesses and restaurants in the Ukraine and using that as a way to get information in. So there's all of these different ways in which businesses can be involved at a deeper level to support our common humanity. Mm. This, is, this is quite a stretch, I believe, because our, our whole society, our whole economic system was based on uh, profit maximization. No? Yeah. Um, so I, I guess it's not easy to do. How, how do you see this issue of being a, the company being a good citizen? when the company has to be very generous to their shareholders probably before anything else as we've seen in, in a company like danone or maybe unilever the shareholders are saying well all this is very nice but but, but we want uh, we want money um yeah. do you see this as a deep lasting change or or just as an exercise of balance that companies have to do saying okay yeah the most important thing is that my shareholder is happy but i'm going to try to think of a few marketing tricks so that uh, I look like a good citizen. Um, how authentic are companies with this? Yeah, so I mean, you're asking lots of interconnected questions right there. So there's, <laughs> there's a question of the companies that virtue signal that basically say, yes, we support X, Y, and Z values, causes, and younger people, Gen Z and millennials, so everyone born probably after about 1980 or thereabouts, are a lot more sensitive to this kind of fake value signaling, the virtue signaling side. So that's one thing to say. Younger cohorts are more likely to go for brands and businesses that support their actual values and live them, whether they're buying or working for these companies. A second thing to say is that there is already great, uh, there's already some great examples of brands that match 
not just their priorities for profit, but they match those with purpose um, around planet and people. And you're seeing this with a massive increase of companies going into B corporations, which is a rigorous way mm. in which to kind of standardize ethical practice within your supply chain, etc. You're also seeing a lot more companies like Patagonia be held up by societies uh, sort of elites as a bastion of good corporate citizenship. So this, this sense of not creating products that are in fast fashion that can't be repaired, etc. And you've also got more conversations at even at starting to be at governmental level around the issue of GDP as a proxy for progress, as a metric that measures human progress. And people talking about growthism or runaway capitalism being absolutely problematic in terms of encouraging companies to think about shareholders rather than to think about the wider world of stakeholders, which is not just the people who have got shares in your company, but your customers, your wider supply chain, the people who work for you, the ecological imprint, the social imprint. So there's, there's a lot in that question. And I think this is a moment in which we're really starting to rethink the systems that underpin the ways in which we do business and build society. And that's where the exciting conversation is happening. Okay, two more questions related to the, the, the sociological and psychological context. The first one, uh, we've been through a pandemic which was traumatic. We, we are going through a war which is, I think, traumatic even for us. Obviously, for Ukrainians, it's, it's, it's a thousand times more, but I think a lot of people are, 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 are anguish. How, do, do companies have to take this into account beyond the notion of purpose that you were talking about? Um, should companies be especially um, uh, not tolerant or open to their uh, to listening to the psychological sensitivities of their employees? Do they have to make sure that they don't put too much pressure on their employees? <laughs> do they do they have to help in a way in the mental health? I guess this is the question. Do they have to help in a way in the mental health of their company, of their employees, and of their customers? I think the short answer is yes, because if we don't collaborate together, we're not going to be resilient to the challenges that come. And so one useful framework for this that I write about in the book is self-determination theory. And all that means is giving people three core needs, giving them ways to meet these three core needs. So one is competence. So give people the skills to be able to cope, whether that's upskilling to be more resilient in your work or skills yeah. like meditation. So that's competence. The second one is about relatedness, giving them a sense of belonging. We know that if people have a sense of community, they are much better likely to thrive in adverse situations such as we're finding now. So community and belonging. Uh, and the third one is autonomy, which is about having your own agency, being able to make decisions in your life. So in the business realm, of course, that means flexible work hours, being able to take time off if you need it, if you're having difficulty coping, being able to work from home as well as in the office. So I think that sort of lens to think how can we help look after our people giving them competence agency and relatedness that's a really practical useful way to think how are we meeting these deeper needs and what could we be doing better or differently you you, you see these these three points as a framework of of some companies maybe it's just a conversation that companies need to have with their employees like hey mm. know that for any human being these three things are important are we yeah. providing you with enough of this? What could we do to do it better? It's a framework of, of analysis and decision. 
Yes, I mean, if we look at the social, the sort of the social psychology around it, we know that these things are fundamental for general well-being in people. And I think often we have these grand ideas within businesses of you know meaning and purpose, but we don't actually look at what that physically, practically means. And so I think having those three conversation points, if you're talking to employees, it gives you a much easier way to ask the right questions to be able to figure out what you can do practically to help support them. So yeah, it's absolutely a useful framework for those conversations to then be able to make practical changes. There's a, an amazing uh, school teacher in the US. I don't know if you've seen her, but uh, I don't remember her name. Um, she tweets a lot, she's got a lot of followers, and she used this to, to talk about video games. She was saying, we're, we're surprised that kids love video games, but think about it, there's three, these three needs. Compare the school and video games. Right. In the school, you have no competency. You're like, shut up and listen. You have no, you have a bit of relatedness, but, but quite limited to like the, the schoolyard moment. And you go, no autonomy whatsoever, because the school, everything is, and they go to a video game, and suddenly they got these three things, so it's not a surprise that they, that yeah. they, that they love them. No? But there are schools, there's a school in, in France, in Arles, called Le, Do, uh, Le Domaine du Possible? Domaine du Possible? The Domain of the Possible. Okay. And they have a very radical new way of teaching where they have all of these three qualities embedded into the way that they teach. They have self-directed study. They have somewhere where people go be creative and, you know, they've got a workshop where teachers are there to help students build whatever they want to build. There's a strong sense of community. They have tradition. They have ritual. And so there are examples of schools that do it well, but it's just, uh, yeah, it's not the, not the norm. mainstream model. Exactly. Um, so the, uh, this one was the, the psychological one. The sociological one, you were saying that uh, like purpose and being a good company with, with stakeholders was uh, a key trend or key need today. Don't we have a bit of a cultural war between the do-gooders hmm. um, and the whole woke movement, the cancel culture? Uh, yeah. I get the impression that we want purpose, but there's part of society which says, uh, what well, is purpose is going too far, it's being judgmental, it's, it's, it's can changing completely our culture, it's questioning our history. Is, is, is it a fine line to, to tread? Is it, is it dangerous to get into this? That's such a good question. So it's really interesting, isn't it, that as we're going, going into more conversations around bias, prejudice, trauma, identity, polarization that we're also thinking about ways in which these conversations are becoming increasingly narrow so on the one hand we have this desire for opening but there's a, a very strong reluctance to share and a closing at the same time and i think part of this is not the issue as far as i can tell is not that we're trying to have these conversations i think it's important to have these conversations the issue is that we're not creating frameworks within which it is safe to discuss difference and to focus on shared commonalities. We're one species, we are diverse, we also share a lot in common. And I think it's tricky when you're talking about issues that arise from centuries of trauma, whether it's intergenerational trauma based on race, based on sex, gender identity, ability, neurodiversity, whatever, whatever aspect of difference you want to look at. I think it's really the containers that we have to create to be able to have generative conversations. And social media as a generic platform has eroded all of that because it benefits from heightened 
sensations and emotions which typically fall into the negative valence, so that's rage, anger, fear, sadness, all of these qualities are amplified by the current platforms that we have. And so it's, and it's, it's basically anti-community building. It just puts us into these tiny pockets of self-reinforcing tribes, thoughts, conversations. So I think we need to have these conversations. I think that there is a tension between wanting to have them and the way in which we have them and people not having a space in which they feel heard, they feel like they matter and they can actually have a conversation that honors all of our humanity um, and also honors the grief and the pain that people carry. It's, yeah, it's a lot more nuanced. So this is a wonderful transition because we are called Evento Plus. We love events. Uh, uh, events have been in a traumatic situation in the last two years. Like some people have started saying, well, a lot of things are going to move online. Um, so the, two, the, the first question is um, this open, honest, tolerant conversation that mm -hmm. we need and that, as you say, is not happening on social media. Do you think that face-to-face -face is, is uh, has an amazing future because it is probably the best place where we can meet and discuss and really understand that the other person is a human too and uh, listen? Yeah. All, all these things which theoretically could be done online but effectively are not really done online. Is, is this one key uh, strength of, the, of events, of physical yeah. events for the future? <laughs> I think it is the key strength. But, you know, when we're talking about the sense of belonging, We want to have a sense of belonging, not just to sort of one or two people, but to a, a deeper sense of community around the world. And I think events do that perfectly. They bring people together that otherwise may not meet with a shared goal in a shared setting. And usually these sorts of environments are stimulating and they're fun. And there's a sense of not just hedonic happiness, which is like the short lived pleasure seeking pain avoiding of being there and you're having fun you're drinking you're eating with new people that you find enjoyable there's a more eudaimonic sense that you get from um from events which is around the sense of purpose and self-actualization you feel like you're growing you're going to your edges you're yeah. meeting new people and that's really special about events you get these two layers the sort of surface level joy and happiness and then a much richer deeper sense of connection and possibility that you simply do not get in the same way online Mm. Um, and I think being physically present with people when we have been so starved of social contact is something which you've come to value more, not less. So, yeah, I think now is the time for well thought out, curated, well crafted and facilitated events. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's a question I, I love, which is very hard to answer, which is what is the last time you talked to somebody and changed your mind? And um, And it is on social media, we know that you, you just like deepen your belief. Yeah. But, but, but physically, I believe that it, it can be done, but it's probably hard because it, it, it requires maybe the moderator. You're a moderator too. I, don't know. Yeah. I guess the whole exercise of moderation of saying, well, listen to the other. Uh, don't think of what you're going to say when the other is speaking. And um, I guess the we need spe special dynamics no, for that because yeah. the trend of the human tendency is to just say I got the truth no yeah and I think it also depends on the way in which you frame a conversation so I also run the Hive podcast I've been running it for several years now and one of the things that I think you notice when you listen to different ways in which people interview or facilitate or have conversations there are people who will enter a conversation with an open stance who want to find out who see the yeah. other person as a source of information and wisdom and 
experiences that we haven't had ourselves. And when you have that stance of curiosity and openness, you find that even where there is room for difference and debate, often because you're trying to understand the other person, you're not getting them into a defensive place. And so you end up with a much richer quality of conversation and you will realize certain things that maybe you didn't realize before that will help furnish either your own position or see weaknesses in your own position. Um, and so I think there's, there's an interesting thing there is, you know, how do you frame a conversation? Is it framed as a debate, which is more adversarial, or is it framed as a fact-finding mission or a way of sort of reimagining what's possible when you bring different minds together? So I think the framing is also incredibly important. Okay. Um, going, going back to this, um, this power of events and the psychological context, we're entering the post-pandemic uh, world. Um, besides this characteristic that you just said, that the, the, the ability of, of events to promote good dialogue and open, open-mindedness, um, are there any characteristics of events which you think are going to make them especially relevant in this post-pandemic world? Um, is there such a thing as the more you're online, the more you also need, the, the more you're high-tech, the more you're high-touch, you know? You know? Yeah. Um, Uh, is, is saturation of communication contacts, content, giving more value to uh, the, the focused time that you can have in an event? I mean, these are, these are just two, two examples, but are they going to be more relevant tomorrow? Yes, I think one of the things that we've seen, um, not just among younger cohorts, but also among the rest of us, is a desire for rich experience. If you look at the motivations that are driving millennials and Gen Z, in terms of the workplace and in terms of what they're buying. It's not about extrinsic factors of success. It's not just about status because you've got lots of money. It's more about, are you living an interesting life? Are you doing interesting things, hanging out with interesting people, going to exciting experiences and events? And so from that perspective, just a generational shift, we're seeing that already. That's been prevalent for a while. I think on a more, on a deeper level, if we're thinking about how to deal with trauma and uncertainty, We know from psychological research that when you bring people together under a shared purpose, you can reduce stress levels, you can give people a sense of hope, you can give them a sense of inspiration. One of the things I found particularly moving is, so I'm, I'm also a musician, I play guitar and I, and I sing, and tonight actually I'm going for, I'm doing a few songs at this event called Enter the Coronavirus down in La Rubia, and they're giving all the profits to Um, victims of war campaigns. And what's interesting is that they set up during the middle of the pandemic and didn't really think anyone would come. And they were completely sold out every single week because people are desperate to have a meaningful moment with others, having a sense of what's possible. And so I think being in person at events of any kind where you're giving them food for thought, food for their hearts, and a relational, the possibility to be relationally connected That's absolutely huge on so many levels. So the question then is, how can you make these events and experiences as meaningful as possible? Um, and what things can people take from these events that they can also bring in, not just to their professional lives, but to their personal lives? And I think that's, you know, the personal and professional is also where we're seeing a lot of interesting conversation. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I, I am always <clears throat> impressed by the almost chemical, therapeutical impact of being together. Yeah. Um, I, if, I, if I go to an event and I don't drink alcohol, I, I, got, I got equally, I got the impression of being 
almost drunk at the end. Yeah. Because the enthusiasm, the stimulation that comes from, uh, especially if you meet quite a few people, uh, the, the, the mental uh, stimulation is, is, is absolutely wonderful. And, and regarding the fact of uh, when people are troubled or, uh, or, or fearful, uh, being together helps. Yeah. Um, I have experienced it less, but, but it's, mm. it's absolutely it, it's absolutely logical. Right? You can yeah. imagine that uh, if we go together, we feel stronger. We understand that we're not alone. I believe that feeling alone is a big problem psychologically for, for people. So mm. let's let's just maybe we'll live in events tomorrow. So all this is the all this is the positive part. The, the, the second one is not negative, but maybe it's a bit more calculated. The thing mm. is, people who listen to us. They do have to save the world, but they also do have to sell shoes or glasses or cars or whatever it is. So um, persuasion, there's a whole science of persuasion. Uh, we're not going to spend the whole rest of the conversation on this, but just so our, uh, our listeners can sell a few more cars. <laughs> what, what did you say are the characteristics? Or a couple of characteristics, there's a huge science of human mind. Um, that is important to, to persuade. I will just launch the basic one, which is not the solution, but the problem. In events, traditionally, we've believed that if somebody very smart comes on the stage and says very smart things and shows a very smart and nice PowerPoint, then people are going to be convinced. And I believe that it's not enough. Yeah, yeah, it's not enough. You're quite right. So when we think about the ways in which we make decisions, Classical economical models think that we weigh up costs and benefits and make a rational choice. The research from behavioral science you know, bodies have shown in the last 40 years plus that we're actually very rational, that we make decisions from an emotional place. And you alluded earlier to the fact that you know, when we're in conversation with someone, if we're gonna change someone's mind, it's quite a tricky thing to do. Usually you do that not through facts and figures, but through emotive storytelling. So if you're giving examples in an event of facts that you want to use to convince people to change their minds, it's great to have the facts, but it has to be embedded within a wider narrative story. And the same is true when you're trying to sell anything. Now, the question is, what stories are the most impactful in shaping behavior change? And we know from recent research that it's stories that not only make people feel good, so they want to feel in a positive emotional state, we also need to be able to build trust and you do that through having um, a platform that has a good track record, that you show that you commit to your promises, you deliver on them. But also it's about telling stories that meet people's deeper values. So with younger folks, it's going to be, what are your social justice claims? How are you helping to support the environment? Um, are you a local business? Do you give back to your employees? So it's looking at these different layers. So not just immediate needs being met, telling a good story, making me feel good, building trust. It's also how do you help me to become more of that aspirational version of myself that I want to be? So if it's glasses, we've got the, um, I forget the first name, Miller, the shop that has these beautiful glasses and they're more expensive, but they last really well. Or Etna, which, um, which I buy from Etnon, which I buy from here for in Barcelona sunglasses. They make glasses out of uh, plant-based polymers, acetate. So I buy from there, it's expensive, but they'll last and they don't damage the planet. So it's finding ways to tell these stories in an emotional sense that meet people's aspirational selves. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is especially uh, making people feel that they're better persons. I guess we all want yeah. to feel like 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 uh, like good people. Um, very very quickly, is is the IKEA effect uh, real and important? Uh, this this idea that when you create something or you you have a role in something, uh, then you're going to be much more attached to it. And this is important in events because in events we've usually like told the gospel, told the truth to the audience. Do you think the key to to changing behaviors is is to make people uh, create the ideas or at least make people believe that they've created the idea? Yeah, I think participation is really important because we know from studies that it gives people a greater sense of intrinsic motivation. And intrinsic is about finding a joy in the task itself, that it feels motivating in itself, as opposed to doing something because you're going to get, I don't know, a high in, a heightened salary or whatever it might be. So giving people the chance to participate, it meets the, the needs that we have for intrinsic motivation, having the chance to participate, but also, again, that point of autonomy gives them some sense of being valued in the task, contributing their ideas, contributing their creativity. So yeah, if you can find ways to include people, even if it's just sort of stopping and having a conversation with a person next to you for five minutes about the key point that the speaker made, even something as simple and seemingly sort of, I don't know, nuanced and short as that can be very effective in giving people that sense of agency and intrinsic motivation. Uh, and maybe a, a very simple way to, to, to phrase it would be that everybody, uh, going back to events, um, that everybody going to an event should feel that they have brought something, no? that they have yeah. contributed something, or uh, that it's not only listening listening to to, to somebody. Um, maybe one one last one. Uh, you, you stress the importance of, of personalization in experiences. Mm. So this obviously online is the, the, the kingdom of pers of uh, personalization because well, it's all zeros and ones and you can say exactly uh, after this step if you put this information you get you get that step um, how important is is um, is personalization and how possible is personalization in in experiences because in experiences it's, it's much more difficult to say well everybody will do what they want to do in a physical space on online i guess the possibilities are endless in a physical space it's um, it's it's a bit it's a bit harder um, do you think event professionals have a, a challenge there i think it depends on the kind of event that you are running um, while personalization is important certainly online i think it also has its perils so the fact that you if people have too personalized an experience, it means that they end up quite atomized and separate and have very distinct experiences from everyone else, which can be convenient and fun, but it also has the problem of not creating a sense of connection, which is what we need, especially now with the pandemic. So I think when it comes to events, it's much better to have a sense of common purpose, common goal. And then the personalization bit actually comes, we do it naturally in person. This is where you have to codify it online, of course, because it's zeros and ones, but in, in individual interactions, we're constantly personalizing how we speak to one another based on the nonverbal feedback we receive, based on motivations that might change the context in which you are. And so I think in as far as you want to create experiences that are going to resonate individually with people, you can do that through facilitated workshops in events where you're giving people a chance to contribute in their own personal individual way with others, but you're not 
requiring each person to have a completely separate, different experience. It's that balance between contributing mm -hmm. on an individual level within a group where everyone's voice is heard, as well as having a common purpose that drives the entire event forward as a group. So it's that kind of delicate dance between the two. Well, I'm afraid we have to leave it at that, which is which is uh, tearing me apart because it's, it's it's absolutely wonderful. Just 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 as a conclusion, uh, these are dark times, um, but I find a lot of what we've discussed is is amazingly positive. Is is that uh, we are rediscovering our humanity. Uh, we will always want to make some money, but but uh, uh, bringing value to society is becoming more important. If companies have to be successful tomorrow, they should not just have good engineers, but they should take care of their people, take care of their customers. Um, so not, not all is rosy these days, but yeah. all these evolutions that you see in marketing and in, in societal issues are overwhelmingly positive, maybe as a, as a counter, counterweight to the horrible things that are happening. I think we're seeing great change in a lot of different areas in business and so many people now are talking about things that they would have been laughed out of the boardroom for talking about five ten years ago there's huge progress being made uh, and i think out of every crisis as well as the heartbreak and the grief and the loss there is also opportunity for creativity reimagination doing something differently and bringing out the best in humanity so this is what i think we have the opportunity for now is that how do we want to envision a flourishing future in which everyone is supported to thrive and businesses have a huge role to play in that as well as events anything that brings people together to become more possible versions of what they would like themselves to be yeah well let's embrace these changes uh, natalie your website is natalinahai.com yep perfect your book is uh, uh yeah your, your latest book you got several books. <laughs> ah this is, this is this the latest is one very delicate product placement, Thanks. business unusual. Our, our, our readers need, our listeners need to know that business unusual, which you can find um, and webs of influence for uh, online persuasion. That's two it. books, two books. Okay, wonderful. Um, and as, as I was saying, you're a brilliant speaker, moderator, um, writer. So if anybody organizes an event and wants to get their attendees to come out of the event much smarter than they got in, then <laughs> they should come back to you. Natalie, you. Uh, great pleasure. Have a great weekend and uh, thanks a lot for your, for your time. Gracias por vuestra atención. Ahora, si os interesa el mundo del marketing experiencial, visitad la web del Experiential Summit ex-summit.com sobre el mundo de la experiencia. Saludos. <laughs>